the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are uh, pretty much beginning a new series in a book authored by me, called uh, Homecoming, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And what we were discussing last week as a brief review is um, whether the goal of the Judeo-Christian journey was um, relocational or transformational, whether it was relocational or uh, directional, whether (laughs) whether it was relocational or relational. And what we came up, we pretty much concluded was that, and if you haven't heard that show, you may want to go back and have a listen at it, but it's basically um, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, as he is known in Messianic circles, Jesus the Messiah, um, had a purpose when he came to earth, and that purpose was to restore everything that was lost in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and especially to restore the ruptured relationship of God's children, Father God's children, Creator Father God's um, uh, relationship with His children. And Yeshua, Jesus, came back as the bridge, the bridge of blood to restore that ruptured relationship between Father God as Creator and His human children, who star, if you will, or kind of are the main protagonists in the drama of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. He gave us authority to rule and reign, have dominion over the earth, to steward it, to take good care of it. And uh, unfortunately, we squandered all of that when uh, we handed over our authority uh, by believing the false suggestions, the false insinuations of the enemy regarding the nature and character of God, and we ended up being part of the problem instead of part of the solution by aligning ourselves, by making a contract with the enemy. So uh, as we left off last week, we mentioned that fathers, um, by design, by God's design, give us three things, and we mentioned the first one of three last week, um, and I challenged uh, our listeners to ask uh, whether you could relocate or locate, probably is a better word, to find the other two things that fathers uniquely give us that others in the God and human drama do not give us. And Jesus only taught us one prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. 
and we discussed last week that how powerful the first two words of the of the prayer begin uh, with our Father, and the whole fact that Jesus is using the plural with the plural pronoun uh, as an adjective, basically saying our Father. And what does that mean when you use the word our, and it's no, no, no one other than Jesus himself saying this is how we should pray? In fact, he starts off by saying that. He says, pray in this, in this fashion, pray in this way. And uh, what we concluded last week with the word our was that um, Jesus, when he's teaching us this prayer, is on earth. He is very God of very God, but he is also very man of very man. And uh, the Father sent the Messiah to rescue his uh, wayward children, not with the Spirit, but with the Son of God, who is also in his role as man. And there was messaging involved in that function of God sending out the Messiah as really a duality, both very God of very God and very man of very man. Most of the um, miracles that uh, are referred to in the Gospels, and even Jesus himself referred to himself as Son of Man way more often than he did uh, as Son of God. And again, it was messaging. It was messaging to the enemy to say, um, basically, Father God never changed his mind about whom, to whom he gave authority to rule and reign over the earth. And also, the messaging was to man, to his children, his created children, to say, Everything you see my son doing, uh, you will, through the authority I have granted to you, will be doing the same as well. And Jesus reiterated that. He basically said, look, uh, in John 14, he says, the works that I'm doing, you will do even greater works. And I really wonder um, if we as Christians, we acknowledge he said that, but we, do we believe it? Do we trust in it? Do we have faith in it? Can we imagine ourselves actually doing greater works because of the level of authority that we have been delegated in Genesis 1 and 2. So that terminology used by Jesus in beginning the prayer, by the way, that's the only prayer he taught us, and the focus is not praying to the Holy Spirit. The focus is not even praying to Jesus. The focus is praying to the Father because we decided last week, and we pretty much laid out the position that it's Father God who is the goal of this whole Judeo-Christian journey. And why is that? Well, if, if Jesus as Messiah came to restore his Father's kingdom, well, that means you had something earlier in your possession that you lost. You can't restore something that you never had. To restore something means you earlier possessed it. What did we earlier possess as human beings in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We possessed a relationship with our mutual Father. When I say mutual, I'm talking about the Father of Yeshua, of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth. If that weren't true, why would, why would Jesus say, pray this way, and he's talking to us on earth, saying, this is how you pray, and then he looks at his brothers, his apostles, his disciples, and says, our Father. So it's obvious that we are talking about a mutual Father. And I asked at the end of last week's show, if, if Jesus is on earth teaching us this singular prayer and the whole focus, the whole emphasis, the whole priority, the whole objective, the target is Father God, then what's that make Jesus to us in a family sense? And what we concluded was when Jesus is teaching us that prayer, he's in a family sense, our older brother. He's not our father because in that moment, Jesus is saying, this is who we pray to, our Father. 
So simple, rational logic would say, though that means Jesus isn't my father because it's someone else because he's saying to pray to him, and this is how we do it. Okay, so what do you call that? Fathers give us three things. The first thing is our identity. The father is the author of the nuclear family which is so much under attack today. It was the Father who created all of the framework, all of the protocols, all of the design in the very beginning. And he said, this is how God's order looks like. This is how God's kingdom looks like. This is how it functions. This is the government of the kingdom. This is, this is how it is to be. And the reason it seems like we are going to spend a little bit of time pointing this out is because all of this is under attack today through our culture at so many levels. All right, going down through the body of the prayer, whether you are a Catholic and you call it the Our Father, or whether you're a Protestant and you call it the Lord's Prayer, as you go down to the body of the prayer, did you, did you conclude where the provision part is of what fathers give us? Because again, the premise is, question is, fathers give us three things. What are they? And number two, where can they be found? And we, again, we discussed it last week. The, all these three things can be located, can be found in the Lord's Prayer, in the Our Father. All right, so the second um, item that fathers give or contribute to in a family setting is provision. And, of course, as you're looking down Matthew 9, verses uh, 6 through 13, you're looking for the other elements. Well, where is the element of provision? And if you're looking at your Bible right now, you may say, oh, okay, this looks familiar. Give us this day our daily bread. That's something that fathers do in their role as father. They provide, they give us our daily provision. All right, the next thing that fathers do in the context of the Lord's Prayer, the last one is protection. Well, where is that? And as you're looking through Matthew chapter 9, you'll look down at verses 6 through 13. You'll look down a little further, and you will see towards the end of the prayer, it says, but deliver us from the evil one. And then it wraps up, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Deliver us from the evil one. Um, That word is very important. It was used um, in the first chapter of Luke when Zacharias was prophesying through the Holy Spirit um, about what type of person John the Baptist would be, his son, and what type of person would the Messiah be, who uh, was soon coming, very soon coming. And you compare that language of what's the purpose of the Messiah. Um, you look at the verbiage used in Luke chapter 1, talks a lot about deliver us from the hands of those who hate us. And then again, you look at Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is in the temple and he's beginning his ministry, look carefully at those words. It comes out of Isaiah 61, but it has the same tone, the same flavor as the Holy Spirit um, utterance through Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Again, the word deliver shows up. I have come to set the captives free. I have to deliver them from oppression. So all of this word is important because protection doesn't mean a Gnostic version of simply going from point A to point B, in other words, earth to heaven. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this earth has been invaded, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, by fallen angels who tricked mankind into handing over 
by means of uh, fraud, by means of deception, his, his being mankind's authority to rule and reign earth, have dominion over earth. And ever since that horrible, awful experience that brought on all of the ramifications and consequences that we're feeling today in our day-to-day existence, there is an ongoing spiritual struggle um, over this place called earth between two heavenly uh, kingdoms, and when I say heavenly, you know, I'm talking about the second heavens of of where Satan is located, but the third heavens where, where Father God's throne is. And that struggle is being played out right here on earth. And the protagonists, the main chief characters of this drama that's ongoing is mankind. And the two realms, spiritual, supernatural realms, are in combat. And we are here in the middle because of our initial designation of our roles as they relate to earth in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Father God put his human children, mankind, in charge of the material creation. That's earth. He did not put fallen angels in charge of anything. The authority was given exclusively in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to mankind. And the enemy was able to steal it from us through fraud. And he can now, the enemy can now, the adversary can now exert his power because we handed him the other element that he needs to be able to captivate earth and its nations. The other element that we handed to him was our divine delegated authority that Father God originally destined, designed for his human children. Okay, I hope that's clear. Um, Three things that Father give us. So in summary, fathers give us our identity in the family. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Romans chapter 8, 15 explains that um, our relationship as children to the Father, and as that relationship begins when we are born again, have that born-again experience, we also, again in Romans 8, it says that we become heirs. Well, heirs are members of a family that are about to receive the bequeathing, if you will, so $25 word for means the, uh, the giving of an inheritance. And it says we are co-heirs with Christ as members of the family. So put that on your put that hat on and try to wear that for a few days and try to imagine yourself the truth of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. We are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. A lot of preachers don't like to preach that last part, but it says that. We have to include that, if indeed we suffer with him. So that's our family identity. And the reason Jesus came was to restore everything, every element of the blueprint, the original blueprint that Father God set up in Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2. You will see that. We've talked about that. The Bible is a circle, not a straight line, not a Greek linear straight line. It's more of a Hebrew slash Jewish cyclical circular story of a family reunion. We're coming back to our home where we were supposed to originally, we came from earth, we're supposed to uh, steward earth, have dominion over earth, and Yeshua, Jesus, came to restore everything that the Father initially put in place in Genesis 1 and 2. Read the last three chapters of Revelation and then compare those to the 
first two chapters of the book of, of um, Genesis and ask yourself, boy, this sounds, this sounds like a circle. This looks like a circle to me. We've come, have we come full circle? And if you look at the scripture in terms of a family reunion, the circular component becomes ever more evident. So those are the three things that fathers give us. Now, it's noteworthy that um, I'm going to share a personal experience here that's in the book. Um, I had been a born-again Christian, goodness, since 1977-78, and um, a, a Baptist brother and the Lord of mine in law school led me to the Lord. Um, long story short, we kind of tried out several um, Baptist churches, and we ended up um, coming to our original roots of uh, Catholicism, but this time it was charismatic uh, Catholicism. And um, so I, after the born-again experience, I had both a relationship with Jesus and got the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well. But there was one thing I was missing in my personal relationship was I really didn't have any urgency or any um, real uh, incentive to seek out a relationship with the first element of the Godhead, which is Father God. And one of the things that I struggle with chronically was kind of a continuing battle with with uh, the spirit of fear. And, and fear is not just an emotion. Fear is also a spirit. And it says that in, in the scripture. I think it was 2 Timothy 1.7. Uh, For God does not give us a spirit of fear, but rather of power, love, and a sound mind. And so it was pointed out to me by um, brother and sister in the Lord. Uh, they said, you know relationally Jesus when you became born again. You, you had an experience with the Holy Spirit, so you've been baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit. But the question was, do you really know Father God? Do you know your Creator, Father? And that really stopped me in my tracks, because that question pointed out to me that I had kind of put on delay or postponed, if you will, my uh, desire to really seek out the Father. And in that process, I was kind of missing out on the whole point of why Jesus showed up. And again, we talked about this last week in John fourteen six. It says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to the Father. No one comes to the Father except by me. And and so a lot of times people have relationships with their human fathers that might not be um, all that positive. Um, I wouldn't put myself necessarily in that category. I, I, I would give it probably, if you had a letter grade from A to F, I'd probably give it in the range of C to C+. Plus. Um, but it, but I think a lot of times people from the stories that I hear don't seek out Father God because their their relationships with their human fathers were probably more negative than they were positive. And so unfortunately, the negative ramifications of those human father relationships spilled over and say, why would I want to know my divine father if what I saw exemplified with my human father was more negative than it was positive? And Jesus came to introduce us to a divine, perfect Father. We will discuss more of this after the break. God bless you. See you soon. Welcome back. We are continuing with our examination of a book authored by yours truly called The Homecoming. 
uh, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And uh, before the break, we pretty much uh, had arrived at a point where I was explaining a personal experience of how coming to relationally know Father God um, brought a whole different um, appreciation of how important it is not to stop in the trek or in the journey, if you will, of Judeo-Christian experience to stop at just experiencing and knowing Jesus, or even the next step that follows, which is having an experience with the uh, Holy Spirit, receiving the, the conviction and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I think the Lord gave me a picture one time of how to describe oftentimes what our experiences um, include or exclude. And not sure if it was a dream or a vision, but he gave me a, a picture of a high school um, quarter-mile racetrack, circular, oblong but circular in its shape and form. And um, it was almost as if I saw all these angels in the, um, in the bleachers, and they're cheering on these, these people who, these people running this race, um, and they're lined up in the starting booth, and the little pistol, target pistol goes off, starter pistol, I should say, and everyone goes off and pretty much starts at the same time. And about a third of the way across this circular track, I noticed that a lot of people were stopping, and they had, you know, cleats, like track cleats on the bottom of their shoes, and they were making a divot with their cleats into the sand, and they were writing with their finger, um, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and they stopped. And I noticed that the angels in the bleachers were all kind of yelling because there was a yellow tape at the end of the circular track. And these people stopped about one-third along the way of the track and basically said, well, I've got Jesus, and so I'm just stopping here. That's good enough for me. And the angels were yelling from the bleachers, keep going. And so the next group of people going around the track um, stopped about two-thirds across the way. And then they, with their cleats in their shoes, kind of dug a divot in there. And then they bent over. And this is a little bit of a smaller group. And they wrote with their finger um, the Holy Spirit, signifying the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But they had stopped also. And again, the yellow tape at the end of the track, at the end of the race, was there. But this second group also stopped. So you had the first group stop at one-third away across the track um, at what they wrote with their finger was Jesus Christ. And then the second group stopped at the two-thirds. The only problem is the whole point of the race, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me, except by me, different versions of the Bible, but basically saying there's one way to the Father. He identifies the goal of the race in that verse, John 14, 6. And we talked about last week, I'm not going to go into those verses, but if you want to hear, it's on the podcast. Um, you can listen to it, but we used a lot of other verses in the New Testament from Peter, from John, from Paul, saying the goal is the Father. And again, the angels at the two-thirds point were again yelling in the bleachers because they have a higher view the people than people are are or what they can see at the earth level of the track and they're saying you guys keep going they were encouraging the the, the runners in the race to to not stop even at the two-thirds mark well there was a group that did continue through 
to the yellow tape. But the significance of the dream was that on the yellow tape, on the finish line, was named the point of the journey. The name of the point of the race was Father God. And that reason that's so important is you have to go back. Again, we've talked about this in Genesis 1 and 2. What did Adam and Eve have? In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in the garden, they had a relationship with their father. Amazing relationship. Go back and read those two chapters. Spend some time in those. Meditate on them. And continue on to the halfway point in Genesis chapter 3. What did they lose that they had in Genesis 1 and 2? What happened in Genesis chapter 3? What did they lose? They didn't lose heaven. They lost their eternal life. They were separated from their father. They lost their Abba, as Paul calls him in Romans, the letter to the Romans, Abba, Father. The Messianic Jews call him Av, Father, God. That's the, Av is the Jewish word for Father. We lost the Father. If you're going to restore the kingdom, as that's the point of Jesus coming to earth, part of that restoration is coming back to our Father. Isn't it interesting that that's the name of the only prayer that Jesus taught us, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. It's all focused on getting a relationship, maintaining a relationship, nurturing a relationship with your divine Father. He made you. He created you. I think it's Psalms um, 133 where it says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Father as a creator didn't make any mistakes as he put you together. Can you imagine you on the assembly line? How many billions upon billions and maybe trillions and trillions of cells that had to come together, just perfect that you would be able to see, you'd be able to hear, you'd be able to have all the five senses that are required in the human sphere. The complexity of the human brain and what that would require to put that together, and yet it's all demonstrated through a handful of mud, of dust, into which Father God breathes. And out comes you in the image and in the likeness of God. It's not what happened with the angels. It's what happened to the future rulers over the material realm. We were the original people who were to uh, have dominion in the material realm, and we're the future rulers of the material realm. Check out Revelation, as we saw last week, Revelations chapter 5, starting at verse 9. We will be kings and we will be priests and we will reign with God on earth. It's a circle. Think of Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son returning to the father. That is such a story that I think um, symbolizes in so many dimensions, so many aspects, the whole point of the entire story of the scripture. Uh, The son thinks that he is smarter than the father, um, with his young age and enthusiasm and exuberance, he goes out and asks for his inheritance and goes out and engages the world and finds out what a deceptive, deceiving place it is. All the stories told to him about how great the kingdom, <laughs> the earthly kingdom is without God, what it looks like, how it operates without God. And he suffered and learned many lessons. And all of these lessons finally ended up with him in the same area where the pigs were eating. And as he was tending to the pigs, because all of his money had been stolen or taken away, or he got tricked out of it, and he spent it all on the things of the earth, 
things of the worldly culture, all those things that were promised to be the best. And, you know, it was all about him just entertaining himself and seeking pleasure, earthly pleasure, worldly pleasure, probably is a better way to describe it. And he loses out on everything. And he discovers that the pigs are eating better than he is. And it's time to come back. And so we see in the book of Luke, the parable of the prodigal son, deciding that, you know, maybe father's plan, father's lessons that he was trying to teach me, father's um, identity that he was trying to give me as a member of the family, the protection that my father had provided me when I was living it under his roof, the identity that I was a, I belonged to something, something that was genuine, tangible, real, meaningful, purposeful, and I was protected. I was provided for because I belong to something called the family. And so he finally decides maybe he'll give me a job if I just come back and humble myself and just repent and say, hey, I blew it. And what a welcome the prodigal son receives. It was more than an offer to work as an employee on the premises. His father never stopped for him to come back, to return. The whole Bible story in Hebrew, it's teshuvah, the return, come back. And can you imagine how it felt when the father who's now seen his son approaching the entryway and he runs towards his son, try to picture the emotional impact, the spiritual impact when father and son come together and he's received with a fatherly, loving welcome back home. This is where you belong. And there is no hey, I told you so, or boy, did, you know, it. they kill the fatted calf. They basically say, welcome back into the family. Now, the older brother has to get a little bit of uh, education of, of how proportional and how important things are to make sure that there's room for the for the errant children who do return. And that's that's what Jesus functions in as Messiah. He's not just delivering us from the hands of those who hate us, as said in Luke 1, and not just delivering us from our prisons, as it says in Luke 4, and from oppression, that says also in Luke 4. He's also not just a deliverer, he is a reuniter. He is one who reconciles relationships. He's one who mediates and basically is the source of, of restoration of relationships, of reconciliation of relationships between errant children and their divine Father. Heaven is a real place, but it's not the goal of the Judeo-Christian journey. Coming back home to your relational context, your relationship with your Father, and your inheritance that's included in that. And that your inheritance, again, I'm not anti-heaven, folks. Some people say, oh, you don't like heaven. I love heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't want to stay to heaven, though, because I'm a human being. And Father says the material creation was made for us. We're coming back with Jesus and his second coming to complete that restoration of the kingdom. And we went over all those verses that, inc- that indicate that. But we just mentioned one today, Revelations 5, verse 9. Read, read those next verses that follow. We're coming back in our roles. We have, we have a job to do in this process of restoration of the divine kingdom back here on terra firma, on earth. This earth is, well, was and is our inheritance. 
We had it in Genesis 1 and 2. We lost it in Genesis 3. And the rest of the story of the Messiah is to bring us back to our identity as children of the Most High Creator Father God. Okay? It's a very special relationship. You're members of the household as sons and daughters. And again, we already mentioned it in Romans 8, uh, 15, where it talks about you're not just children. If you're children, you're also heirs. Well, an heir receives its inheritance. Our inheritance is that which is what we were given in Genesis 1 and 2. We weren't given heaven. We were given the earth, and we got tricked out of it. We got deceived from it. We walked away from it. We handed it over. Fortunately, I'm just speaking as a retired attorney and judge here, uh, when a contract is based on fraud, the contract of agreement that Adam and Eve, especially Eve, made with Satan as far as him attacking the nature and the character of Father God, and she bought into it. And when she bought into it, she agreed with Satan and his allegations and his insinuations and his suggestions against the nature and character of Father God. That, in essence, that agreement is, in essence, a contract. And that contract basically handed over the human authority to have dominion over the earth because she walked away from her purpose, as did Adam. He didn't stop it either. They walked away from their purpose in the original design, which is we were to receive the likeness of God, to be in his likeness, being made in his image. And after we received the vertical download of the likeness of God into us, that was to be imaged out horizontally to others who didn't yet have it. That was the purpose, and that was lost through that fraud and deceit and deception. It was larceny, if you will. And if we can keep in mind what happened in that parable that Jesus taught us, in Luke 15. That is going to simplify so much of what I think we make overly complicated in Scripture. The Bible story is a family reunion story. If you describe the Scripture as a family reunion back to our mutual Father, why do I say mutual? Well, between Jesus and ourselves, and Paul talks about that in Romans 8, 15. That means that, boy, if you... If that's a mutual father, then you're getting all the right title and interest to to the inheritance. You're a co-heir with Christ. That's pretty, pretty amazing because you're family members. This is why the family is so important. And this is another reason the nuclear family is being attacked by the adversary, by Satan in modern times. What would you expect? Anything that Father God comes up in a creation paradigm a creation mold, if you will, a prototype to say, this is noble, this is good, this is decent, this is worthy of honor. Satan, of course, is going to attack anything and everything that Father God did and does. And that's why we see such attacks on the so-called patriarchy. I mean, this has been going on for the last 50, 60 years. I mean, I grew up in the, in the 60s. I heard all about this. I have some examples that I may share with you the next time we get together on the radio um, about how Satan manifests everything that he's against when it comes to God's creation plan and family focus. He is going to attack it through politics, through culture, through entertainment, uh, through education, you name it, he will come after it. And that's what we see today in American culture. You know, I grew up in the—also when I was very young, I grew up in the 50s. 
And I remember there was a television show. Um, we had lots of TV shows that admired fathers and their roles. One was called uh, Father Knows Best. And uh, I don't care whether you watched Leave it to Beaver or whether you lost the Donna Reed show or, or Ozzie and Harry. Oh, the fathers were always portrayed in the 50s as um, paragons of wisdom, of virtue, leadership, everything that the Bible says fathers' roles ought to be. That was the initial description. That's what I grew up talking about, you know, a television culture. The television culture was very different in the 50s than it was in the um, mid to late 60s and all the way into the 70s. If you shift gears, and we'll talk about this next week, what in the world happened? Why the attack on father? Well, we went from father knows best to um, all of the um, attacks mocking fathers. We went from father knows best to father's, uh, father is a doofus. He's portrayed uh, in Hollywood, you know, in the late 60s and 70s as someone who's incapable, he's incompetent, he um, doesn't know up from down. He's certainly not anyone to emulate or to follow. And um, that whole reversal in that short time is, is something that we probably should examine from a spiritual root standpoint. And things that happen in, in front of us in our culture, let's take a deeper dive and see why the attack on fathers. Why is, are the fathers diminished? Why are they negated? And I think we ought to do a deeper dive, and we will do that um, next week. There'll be a book that I'm going to bring up that I think you ought to read. Actually, two books besides the one that we're dealing with right now, but we got to educate ourselves on this. Got to get better at this and more engaged in this cultural, spiritual struggle. Until next week, may you have many simple truth moments God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.